joined us this morning. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here and uh, so glad to have you with us on this Palm Sunday. Uh, I think we've got an incredible, a great story uh, for Palm Sunday, a great uh, message today. And so I'm just really excited for it. Hey, when you walked in, uh, hopefully you received uh, message notes uh, that you're going to take notes later. Uh, I had somebody say to me, um, because they're blank today, and sometimes we've got fill in the blank. Somebody said, oh, now I've got to come up with my own thoughts. <laughs> and so uh, I'm sorry about that if you're the kind of uh, person that likes to fill in the blank, but uh, we're so glad. Uh, I know that the Lord's going to give, give you something that you can write down. Uh, if you're a guest or visitor, we'd love for you to grab the connection card uh, in the seat back in front of you and fill that out, and you can drop it in the offering when it comes by in a minute. Or if it's truly your first time or your first time you filled something like this out, take it to the info hub right by the exit doors, and they'll be happy to give you a gift just for being here this morning. Uh, a couple things I want to make you aware of that are coming up here at Genesis Church. Uh, this is the beginning of what is typically called in the church the Holy Week. And uh, on Friday, we're going to have a celebration at both of our campuses, Noblesville and Carmel, of Good Friday. And it'll be a come and go experience. Uh, you can come when you want between 4 and 7 p.m. and uh, stay as long as you uh, want to and then leave when you're ready. And it'll be a chance for you to uh, come in, hear some worship music, to uh, contemplate what Jesus did on the cross, to have some time to pray and have, have communion and just really have some space. And so we hope, especially if you've got Friday off or if you've got some time on Friday evening, that you'll come in and uh, make that a part of the way you worship over Easter weekend. Uh, We're just so excited that we get to do that again this year. And we had, um, I don't know, however many people that came through last year, they had a great time and we're just very complimentary of just, we we don't get very many places in life to create space around us, do we? And so just to have that space and really contemplate the the gift that God has given you uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus. We hope that you'll do that on Friday. Uh, On the complete opposite, so that's a nice, quiet, contemplative moment. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, uh, I want to tell you about something that's coming up for our high school students. Uh, June 15th through the 20th, our high school students are going to the MOVE conference. It is at Hope College in uh, Holland, Michigan. And I've actually been to this, not as a high school student, but as a leader a few years ago. It's an incredible experience for high school students. And uh, it's a great way to spend a week of your summer. Uh, It's June 15th through the 20th. Uh, Kids get bored. Students get bored during the summer. We know that. Uh, it's a long summer, so why not break it up with some place where they can go and for a week just be around other high school kids that are worshiping Jesus. It's really cool. I'm telling you about it now because the deposit is due April 1st, which is on Tuesday. And so a $100 deposit is due by then. Uh, and so if you want to be a part of that, if your student wants to be a part of that, uh, you should sign up. You can uh, put on your connection card if you want, uh, drop that in the offering. You can write a check for 100 bucks, drop in the offering, put um, Move Conference on it so that we know that, or you can talk to somebody at the Info Hub. Uh, after the service, they'd be happy to tell you more about that. I've got a little more for you, but I'll talk to you about it after uh, we take our offering because we get a chance as part of our worship this morning uh, to celebrate the work that God has done in our lives from a financial perspective. So I'm going to invite our host team forward. Yeah, and they're going to take the offering. While they do that, I want to tell you that uh, Genesis Church is all about uh, doing kingdom work. And uh, one of the ways we do that, obviously, we're a multi-site church. We have two locations, uh, one in Noblesville, one in Carmel. And uh, we also want to be about the business of church planting, planting churches. And uh, one of the things that we got to be a part of last year was helping a former staff member, Josh Tandy, who was our uh, youth pastor and also our group's pastor, plant a church in the Cincinnati area in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, a church called Movement Church. And they just recently, a couple weeks ago, celebrated their one-year anniversary of being And so I want to show you this and take a look at what's going on at Movement Church.
it's about 8.30 on Sunday morning of our one-year anniversary, one-year celebration here at Movement Church. Uh, I'm so glad to have uh, the Sprinkles and the Heaths here with us to, to lead us in worship and just to celebrate with us. We just so appreciate uh, what Genesis has meant to this church, uh, not just financially, but the prayers, the, the encouragement, the coaching, the support. It's been it's been truly, truly crucial for us to have that, and so so thankful for it. So we're excited. Uh, it's snowing. It's a pretty snow, and so we're expecting a lot of people here today, uh, and we're just so thankful for what you've done to contribute to Movement Church's story as we move forward. So thank you so much, and thanks for helping us get to this one-year celebration. Movement Church is one year old! We just love being a part of what God's doing all over the place. Uh, it particularly warms my heart to see so many good friends in one video, although I couldn't do without the snow. <laughs> so, uh, hey, we're finishing up our series called Through the Lens today. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this around you. Uh, and John chapter 11 is uh, somewhere in the back. I don't have the page number right now, so sorry about that. Uh, if you missed it... Uh, Paul Mumaw was here last year, our lead pa- or last week, our, Paul, our lead pastor Paul Mumaw was here. Um, I love it when Paul's here, don't you? Yeah, Paul's a great, he's a great teacher. Um, both Paul and Kevin, uh, Kevin Russell, our groups and discipleship pastor, when they're here, um, I just get really fired up because they're both such great teachers. They really encourage me to raise my game and make me want to be a better teacher. And so I- I'm so glad when they're here. But Paul's also a really good friend. You know, a lot of people think that there must be some competition between us preaching at two different campuses, and I always say, you know what, it's, real, it's really no competition. And uh, so anyway, <laughs> no, Paul is, Paul is uh, my friend, but he's also my pastor. He's the guy I go to when I have problems, and I know some of y'all think that I don't ever have problems, that my life must be perfect, but it's not, and when I have problems, I go to Paul. But here's what happens. When Paul or Kevin or somebody else is here and they get to teach, uh, when I'm on vacation, it's cool, that's fine, but when I'm here in the room, like I start to get really fired up. And I start to hear a message and I go, oh, if I was preaching that, I would say this differently or I would use this story or I've got a great example for that. And so I get really uh, anxious and I feel like I was kind of on a roll, right, before Paul came and I was, I was uh, really feeling it. And so when Paul came, it was like, oh, okay, stop and breathe. I got to take a break. But then when I come back the next week, I'm like really fired up. So I just want you to know that I'm really fired up today. And, and, uh, and I'm particularly fired up because um, I've been on Facebook too much this week and um, if any of you have Facebook accounts, you probably know that uh, reading everybody's uh, political Facebook posts and tweets has been uh, a real um, adventure this week between uh, Ted Cruz running for president and the Religious Freedom Act and everything that people are posting on. It seems like um, everybody's got an opinion and everybody feels the need to share their opinion, right? And so uh, let me just ask you, has anybody in the room, if you have, that's great, has anybody ever changed a vote or a political opinion because of something you read on Facebook? Raise your hand if you've done that. No, 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 I didn't think so. But it seems like we use this, uh, what could be a great social tool to just really spew stuff out that we think is right, right? And it doesn't matter which side you're on. I'm not talking to anybody in particular, but um, we've gone, I feel like where we've gone off track as a society is because of not because of the internet maybe, but because of uh, the availability of all these tools, we've gone from I'm right, you're wrong, right? That's where we used to be, I'm right, you're wrong, to now I'm right and you're an idiot. (laughs) Or I'm right and you're a bigot. Or I'm right and you're un-American. You can't possibly disagree with me 
and still be a good American, right? Or you can't possibly disagree with me and still be a Christian. And so it's been so frustrating for me to see this week, and it got me thinking, what would the founding fathers have thought of the internet? You know, what would the guys and and ladies who started this country, what would they have thought about this forum where you've got this almost anonymous ability to to, to, um, display your opinion and no accountability for what you say or believe. And um, I, start, I thought about this the first time, uh, probably a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, when uh, my family and I went to Washington, D.C. for uh, spring break. And maybe my, my favorite thing to see in Washington, D.C. is the Library of Congress. I go to the Library of Congress. It's right behind uh, the Capitol. And uh, we got there, and we only had about 15 minutes when we got to the Library of Congress. But it's an incredible place. The Library of Congress, if you don't know, is the National Library of the United States. Uh, it, was, uh, it covers three buildings now in Washington, D.C., uh, in that area, uh, the largest of which is called the Jefferson Building, uh, named after Thomas Jefferson, obviously one of the founding fathers. Uh, it was established in 1800 when then-President John Adams decided that, hey, it would be good if Congress uh, had some books to read. Literally, that was the idea, was that Congress could have uh, books that they would keep in a library where they could be educated on the issues of the day. Uh, great idea. It was burned down in 1814 by the British, because uh, apparently because they thought Congress was getting too smart, um, and they didn't want them to have their books, so they burned down the Library of Congress, which is probably why we don't fight with the British anymore today. Uh, that's all I've got to say about that. Um, but it was then reestablished in 1815 when the government purchased the entire library of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Thomas Jefferson um, had uh, 6,487 books, an incredible collection for somebody in his day. And in 1815, he, he always said, Thomas Jefferson, if you've read anything about him, he always said, I could never live without my books. And then in 1815, they offered him $23,500 for his books. And he said, oh, you know what? I could live without those. And so um, they rebuilt the Library of Congress based on the collection of Thomas Jefferson. If you don't know Thomas Jefferson, American founding father, principal author of the Declaration of Independence. He was the third president of the United States, 1801 to 1809. History indicates that Jefferson had a very fond, uh, a real fondness for the teachings of Jesus. He, he was a, a child of a period commonly called the Enlightenment with uh, people like John Locke who really promoted and valued a form of thinking and reason and logic and individualism above things like faith and community. And that certainly influenced Thomas Jefferson and his faith, so much so that in February 1804, Jefferson went to work in his personal Bible with a pair of scissors, and he started cutting out the pieces that he didn't like. In fact, he cut out, he left all of the uh, ethical teachings of Jesus, but he cut out all the miracles and all the supernatural. Jefferson was big fan of the ethics of Jesus, but he didn't care for all the supernatural hokey pokey that was going on in the Bible, and so he cut them out. Isn't that interesting? It's, isn't it the opposite of what we see today? So many of us would love to have the miracles of Jesus, but we don't want to have to live by that ethical code, right? Wouldn't we like to have the stuff that Jesus offers and the things that he did and the healings and the, and the feedings, but not have to have the ethics of Jesus. How many of us would like that? Well, that's, Thomas Jefferson was the opposite. He wanted the ethics. He believed in the ethical code, but he didn't like all the miracles, and so uh, he cut them out. So the Jefferson Bible included the teachings of Jesus, but excluded miracles like the virgin birth and the resurrection and the 34 distinct miracles that Jesus performed in between. And in the words of one historian, he said, if a moral lesson was embedded in a miracle, the lesson survived Jefferson's compilation, but the miracle did not. Now, when Thomas Jefferson got to the book of John, the book we've been studying for the last seven weeks, his scissors were kept very busy. 
as there are a lot of miracles in there. Uh, and uh, what we see is Jefferson's version of the gospel ends with the stone rolled in front of the tomb. Jesus died on the cross, but he never rose from the dead. That's crazy. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? How can you take a pair of scissors to the most defining event in our faith, in our history of the world, in the history of the world? Part of us says, you can't do that. You can't just erase the biggest, most powerful thing that God's ever done. But the truth is, I think we all, all of us, we do that sometimes. Maybe not literally take a pair of scissors to our Bible, but all of us sometimes doubt. You know, we, we give up hope that God can do the amazing things that we've seen him perform in our life before. Well, this whole series, we've been talking about the miracles of Jesus in the book of John and how each miracle gives us an opportunity to really zoom in and see what the heart of God is like. We get a better picture of what God is really like. And we've talked about in this series that the goal is to not put our hope in miracles, but to put our hope in God. But can I tell you something? Even as we put our hope in God and we increase our faith in him and dependence on him, I want you to know that I believe in miracles. Like, I believe that the things in this book really happened. I believe that Jesus did the seven miracles we've talked about and the 27 other ones that are defined in here. I believe he was uh, born of a virgin. I believe he, raised, he was raised from the dead after he died. I believe he went to the cross for our sins. I believe what happened in this book. I believe that God does miracles. I believe he still does miracles today. I believe that. I think I want you to know it's okay to pray for a miracle. Right? So even as we're talking about this throughout this series and we're saying, hey, don't look at the miracle, look at God. Hey, we want to we take, don't look over here. All right, look over here. But it's okay to pray for this, all right? It's okay to pray for a miracle. Please don't cut the possibility of a miracle out of your life. I mean, Mary didn't even when the host of the party ran out of wine. You know, what did she do? Well, she went to Jesus. She knew where to turn. The nobleman didn't. You know, even we don't know what he believed about Jesus, what he knew about Jesus. But even when it seemed like there was no hope, he knew where to go. All he knew that his son was dying and he had heard about this Jesus and he went to him and he expected a miracle. The lame man, all he ever knew was begging for help. Until the day he met Jesus. You know, the 5,000, they didn't give up on a miracle. I'm sure they didn't know how they would be fed, but when Jesus said, break into groups of 50 and 100, they broke into groups of 50 and 100. And when Jesus said, sit down, they sat down. And they may have been looking at that measly little meal at the, front, uh, at the bottom of the hill, uh, but they knew, they figured that something was going to happen. You know, in John 6, Jesus walked on water, and for a while, Peter did too. He didn't give up on miracles. And last week, we saw Jesus uh, do something he'd never done before when he healed a man who was born blind. And God opened his eyes so that he could see. And I'm praying that he will open my eyes and your eyes to see that no matter what you're up against, no matter what you see standing in front of you, that God can. He is able. I think there's a natural tendency for all of us to want to explain away the supernatural, to want to Uh, come up with a logical explanation for what we can't see or understand. We we can't help but want to reduce God to something that we can understand, right, or explain to people. In the words of A.W. Tozer, what you end up with is a God who can never surprise you, never astonish you, never overwhelm you, and never transcend you. And might I add, a God who can never do miracles. That's not the God I believe in. 
And I hope it's not the God you believe in. I believe in a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing. I believe in a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask, think, or imagine, and who's, uh, according to the power that's at work within me. I I believe in a God whose thoughts and ways are higher than my ways and my thoughts. I believe in a God whose love is so great, it's beyond my comprehension, and probably will never be within my comprehension this side of heaven. I believe in a God who always was and is and always will be. He is the God who created the laws of nature and the God who can break the laws of nature. I believe in a God who created the earth by the power of his word and a God who is mysterious enough to keep us wondering whether that's a new earth or an old earth or a borrowed earth or a blue earth. (laughs) He's a God who can turn water into wine, who can heal a man born blind, and the same God can answer your prayers with a miracle. So don't stop praying. Keep trusting him. Keep turning to him. Don't stop. Don't cut the possibility of miracles out of your life. And don't, most importantly, don't cut out a God who can do miracles out of your life. All right, so John 11 is where we're going to start today. That's the introduction, all right? And so let's, let's preach a message now, all right? John 11, uh, verse 1, we're going to talk about. Now, uh, this, this comes right on the heels of right before uh, what we know is the Holy Week. We're celebrating Palm Sunday today. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for the final Passover of his life, the final week of his life. He arrived to accolades from the crowd. And one of the reasons that he received accolades from the crowd is this very miracle we're going to talk about today. People had heard about what happens with a man named Lazarus. Verse 1, John 11, 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, if you're reading chronologically, you haven't seen this miracle, or you haven't seen this story yet of Mary uh, pouring perfume on Jesus' feet, but you will. But uh, John is telling us, hey, this is the same family. I want you to know, same family. So, verse 3, so the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, it's interesting to me that they only referred to Lazarus as the one Jesus loves, because doesn't Jesus love everybody? (laughs) Well, yes, but there's clearly some special relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. The one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, the reality in this situation was that Lazarus was sick, and he was going to die, and everybody knew that, but Jesus wasn't buying it. You know, I think all of us hit spots in our lives when we think it's over, don't we? Maybe you were dating somebody, and that relationship ended, and now you feel like, well, it's over. There's no hope. Or your marriage is suffering. You and your husband aren't on the same page. You and your wife, you aren't on the same page. You feel like it's dying, and you see very little hope. You made a mistake, and you know your life's never going to be the same. You, you feel like it's over, or you lose your job, or your grades are suffering. You're not sure how you're going to make it to college, or a loved one dies, or a loved one leaves, and you feel like it's over. It's not over. You may feel like there's no hope, but as long as there's Jesus, there's hope. What did Jesus say? He said, this sickness will not end in death. And if you're not familiar with this story, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you. As you'll see if you read for yourself, Jesus is going to return to Bethany, find that Lazarus is already dead, and he's going to raise Lazarus back from the dead. It's the last miracle we're going to see Jesus perform in the book of John uh, before he goes to the cross. And he did this for Lazarus' sake, for sure, because uh, Lazarus was the one he loved. And clearly he loved Lazarus' sisters, and he did it for their sake as well. But I think he also did it for the disciples. 
And I've said this before, but I think this is maybe the greatest act of foreshadowing we ever see in the history of the world. Uh, You see, the whole time Jesus is walking around with these 12 disciples, these men closest to him, and he can tell them, hey, I'm going away. I'm going to be with you for a little while, but then I'm not going to be with you. And where where I'm going, you can't go. And I'm going to be gone for a while, but then I'm going to come back. And these guys are always like, huh? What's he talking about? He's going to go away. What's he mean he's going to go away? And I, I honestly believe that Jesus thought maybe, hey, maybe if I show them what I'm talking about, then they'll finally get it. And so he goes back to Bethany and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to Lazarus after that. There's a couple stories circulating in church tradition. There's two possible explanations for what may have happened. One tradition holds that he and his sisters, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, made their way to the island of Cyprus, where Lazarus eventually became the first bishop of Kidion. Uh, which is a a town in Cyprus. The Church of St. Lazarus is there, if you ever have been to Cyprus. Some believe that it's built over his second tomb. Think of it, just think about that saying, his second tomb. Lazarus had a second tomb. How fun is that? You know, can you, you know anybody who could say they had a second tomb? Well, Lazarus could, he had a second tomb. A second theory holds that Lazarus and uh, his sisters ended up in Marseille, France, where Lazarus was hiding in a tomb. How ironic is that? Uh, when the Roman emperor uh, Domitian was persecuting Christians and that he was eventually beheaded for his faith there. But, but either way, honestly, I'm not sure which tradition is true or if either of them are true, but here's the point. Either way, Jesus gave Mary and Martha and their brother back. They gave them his brother back, their brother back, and Lazarus lived two lives. He got a second life. He, he got a, had a life before Jesus and a life after Jesus. Do you know the same can be true for you? What what God did for Lazarus, the miracle that we see recorded in this piece of scripture in John, that's the miracle that God wants to do for you. God wants to give you a second life. He intended for us to live two lives. It's all spelled out for us in Ephesians 2. If you uh, have your Bible open, you might flip over to Ephesians 2. Keep your finger in John 11. But but, uh, Ephesians 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, uh, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us, all right? He's talking to people in the church. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. He's talking to people in the church, right? He's talking to Christians. It It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The Apostle Paul wrote this, and he's telling people in the church, he's saying, hey, there came a time, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, there came a time when you put your faith in Jesus, that, that we were dead in our sins. Right now, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, the Bible says you are dead. You may not feel dead. You may have a life that looks good from the outside, but maybe deep down inside you feel something, but the Bible says you are dead in your sin. But when you submit your life to Jesus, he takes your sin away and he gives you in exchange his righteousness. 
that, that you're no longer dependent on yourself to come up with your own righteousness. He gives you his righteousness. He brings us back to life. And not only does it give us a second life, but he came, Scripture tells us, so that we might have life that's more abundant than the first life we had. He came to give us life and give it more abundantly. That means that uh, it's a life that won't end. It's a life with more joy and purpose and peace and power. And that's why Jesus came. He came to give you a second life. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. This is the only thing I'll give you all day, okay? Everybody has to die once. But some people get to live twice. Everybody gets to die once. Some people get to live twice. Let, let me tell you what I mean by that. Jesus is presenting you this offer. He said, I'll, I'll take your current life. He said, you're already dead in your sin. Why don't you give me your current life? And, and I'll give you, I'll replace it with a new life. I, I heard the story once of a, of a little girl who um, had this uh, beautiful, beloved string of plastic pearls that she got in one of the dress-up dress kits that she had um, received from, as a Christmas gift. And she was so enamored with this dress-up kit, and she loved this string of plastic pearls. And every night when she went to bed, her dad would tell her, um, honey, give me your pearls. She'd say, no, daddy, I love them. He'd say, honey, give me your pearls. she said, no, daddy, I love them. And so every night he let her wear them, and she wore them for a while. And then finally one day he came into her room, and he goes, he goes honey, you need to give me your pearls. She goes, no, daddy, I love them. He goes, sweetheart, do you trust me? Yeah, daddy, I trust you. Honey, give me your pearls. No, daddy, I love them so much. Honey, give me your pearls. Do you trust me? Yeah, daddy, I trust you. And so she takes her necklace off and hands it to her dad. And from behind his back, he gives her a strand of real pearls and puts them around her neck. And I think about that exchange. She, she had pearls that were dead. <laughs> and they were exchanged for a strand that was living. She, you know, God offers us the opportunity to, change, to exchange our dead life for a new life. And if you don't do anything about it, if you never make a decision to accept that offer, you will die someday. And that's the end. You are separated from God for the rest of your life for all of eternity. But if you accept that offer, you choose to die now, and that's hard because you kind of like your life in a lot of ways, but you can choose to die now. The you you know will die replaced by new life in Christ. You are immediately granted a second life. Then someday when your body is old and withered, you won't die, but you'll have eternal life. In fact, people sometimes ask me, how confident are you, Steve? How confident are you that you're gonna have eternal life? And I can say I am 100% completely confident because I've already received it. It's already started. In fact, I'm already on my second life because I know the me I used to be. And the me I am now bears absolutely no resemblance to the person I was before Christ. In fact, I have a problem. This is, I'm very serious about this, okay? I have a real problem that a lot of my friends don't have. I, have, um, I will have from time to time because of Facebook and Twitter and other things, I will have old high school friends that contact me and want to be my friend on Facebook, right? And I will go, who is this person? Like, my memory is not that bad. But I will see somebody's face. I'll see their picture. I'll have to go back through my yearbook, and I'll look, and I'll go, oh, well, I kind of remember their face, but, like, did we know each other? Were we friends? Did he stuff me in my locker? I mean, how do, how do we know this person? And the honest truth is I won't remember almost any of the people I was in high school with, and I couldn't figure out why. And then one day I realized it's because I'm not the same person I was in high school. I am a new creation. 
And I would honestly forget most of the people I knew in high school. And not because I don't remember anything from that time, because I do. I still remember all the theme songs of my favorite TV shows. I still remember, you know, what movies I watched and every line from the movie Ghostbusters, you know, when I was 15. But I can't remember the person who sat next to me in homeroom because I'm not the same person I used to be. I am living my second life now. Now, we don't know how long... Uh, Lazarus lived his second life after Jesus raised him from the dead. Some suggest around 30 years, but however long it was, it's important for you to see that Jesus gave him a second life. And he wants to do the same for you. If you've never trusted Jesus with your life, he wants to give you a second life too. Verse 17, skip down to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. We're not exactly sure why it took Jesus so long to get there. Uh, He'd already been in the tomb for four days. It wasn't that long of a walk uh, to Bethany, but What I want you to hold on to is that sometimes things, when we think they're bad, sometimes they get worse. Sometimes things go from bad to worse. That's the case for Mary and Martha. They sent word to Jesus, and then they waited, and they waited, and Jesus didn't come, and their brother died. And while we can't know for sure why Jesus let it happen this way, I can't help but wonder if God sometimes lets things go from bad to worse so that he can reveal even more of his grace even more of his love, even more of his power than we could have ever known without that problem. You know, with Jesus, maybe God was setting the stage for these friends to experience a miracle greater than anything they'd ever seen before. And so in verse 21, uh, Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. You know, what's up with Martha in this? Is she being a little sassy? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, maybe not, but she's clearly hurt. You know that. You can see that in her voice. But I think we can all relate to what Martha's asking here. Sometimes I wonder why God didn't act to keep something from happening, don't you? You wonder why God didn't show up when I was expecting him? Like, where were you? Jesus, where were you when my marriage was falling apart? Where were you when my kids were getting into trouble? Where were you when I had my first drink or had my first smoke? Where were you when I started hanging out with the wrong crowd? Where were you when I couldn't pay my bills? Or how about this? God, where are you? Where are you right now? Can't you see the situation I'm in? But Martha says, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Those two little words, even now. She says, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. She's holding out hope. Her brother's been dead for four days, and she's holding on to her faith. Put your faith in God. Keep trusting. Don't don't give up. Don't give up hope. We need to live our lives more like Peter and get out of the boat. And even though 11 people are going to be in the boat calling you crazy for your faith, hey, they're going to call you crazy for something. They're going to call you crazy for what you believe. Why not let them call you crazy because you have way too much faith? Because you have too much hope. Because you're too sure, you're too certain that something great is going to happen in your life. Don't give up on God, even when you think he's late. Even when you think he's late, it's too soon to give up on him. Let's jump to the end of the story, verse 43. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. And Jesus is about to reveal a dimension of his power and glory that nobody's ever seen before. He calls out Lazarus, and what a moment. You know, according to Jewish burial customs, it's 
Some suggest that Lazarus would have been buried in, uh, in grave clothes that were uh, soaked in oil and spices, and uh, his head would have been wrapped. Um, he would have looked like a mummy coming out of the tomb, literally a mummy walking out of the tomb, probably with about 100 pounds of grave clothes on. Imagine a mummy walking out of the tomb with 100 pounds of grave clothes on, and, and Mary and Martha and their friends are overjoyed. The kids are screaming. They're going crazy. But if you think about it, while this miracle foreshadows you know, Jesus' resurrection that we're going to talk about next week, it foreshadows my resurrection and your resurrection too. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, because of our sin, our soul, our lives are burdened, are weighed down like these grave clothes weighed down Lazarus. Our sin buries us alive. Psalm 38 says, because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bone because of my sin. Listen to this. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Our sin weighs us down. There's nothing we can do on our own to remove that weight, to remove that weight of sin. But there's someone who can. You know, Jesus can remove the weight of that sin. Jesus is the one who calls us from the grave. He's the one who calls us into a second life. And that's, that's why some of you are here today. You're here because you need to hear God calling you out of the grave, calling you back from the dead. You know, Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. He wants to call you out of the tomb today. He invites you to leave your sin behind, that burden of sin that you've been carrying your whole life and leave your old life behind and to find forgiveness and an abundant life within him. If we go back to verse 25, Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked this question, do you believe this? It's a question that Jesus had for Martha, and I believe it's the same question he has for you and me. Do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you believe you can get a second life? Martha, do you believe your brother can have a second life? I wonder about you. Do you believe you can have a second life? Maybe you're already on your second life. Do you believe your kids can have a second life? Even if they've walked away? Do you believe your parents can have a second life? Do you believe your brother, your sister, your family member you've been praying for? Do you believe your neighbor uh, who seems so lost? Do you believe your friend you've been praying for? Do you believe they can have a second life? Jesus is asking you, do you believe? With one little yes, Jesus can perform a miracle in your life or anyone's life. One little yes can change your life, can change their life. One little yes can change their eternity. How many of you are ready to trust him today? How many of you are ready to say, I believe and I'm ready to follow him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, just for this view into the love that you offer to us that you want to give us a second life, God, that you loved Lazarus so much that even when the situation seemed lost and hopeless and he was uh, buried under a burden that there's no way he could carry himself, that you called him out of the grave. And Lord, even today, I feel that you're calling people out of the grave here, that that you're giving us a message of hope for those of us who are believers already, that we're Christians already, that, that that person we've been praying for can have a second life in you. And Lord, I just pray that all over this room now, if there are people in this room right now that have been praying for a loved one, praying for a friend, praying for a neighbor to get a second life, Lord, I just pray right now uh, alongside them that you would call them out of the grave. Call them to that second life. 
And Lord, for people in this room that are here today and they're not, maybe not sure why, that they've never made that decision to put you at the center of their life. Man, if you're, if you're here today and you're in that category right now and you think, I, I've never made that decision, but I wanna do it today, you can pray this right along with me. Just pray, God, I need you in my life. I'm tired of carrying this burden on my own, Lord. I have sinned and I need your help. Would you send your Holy Spirit to live in me? I'm gonna follow Jesus the rest of my days. And if you just pray that prayer, welcome to the kingdom of God. Jesus is giving you a second life right now. God, I am so thankful that you give us this look into who you are and that the grace that you have for us and the way you choose to rescue us. Guys, we go into a time of communion now. Just help us to remember the sacrifice and the price that it cost you to give us that uh, free gift. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, for anyone in this room that's received their second life, uh, now's the opportunity we're gonna take communion together. Uh, It's our great chance for us to remember that our second life uh, didn't cost us anything, but it did cost something. You know, that Jesus uh, paid the price for us. And taking communion, we remember the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. Uh, We take a somber moment to remember the price that he paid. And so in the next few moments, I want to invite you, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, to make your way up to the communion tables. There are two here and there are two at the back. And uh, this is for those who have given their life over to Christ and have received a second life. Now, if you've never made that decision, I don't want this to be an awkward moment for you. It's just an opportunity for you maybe to uh, sit and reflect. Think about uh, what it means that Jesus came to call you out of the grave. Take a moment and sit in your seat and think about that. What does it mean for me? But for those of you uh, who have made that decision, you can go ahead and make your way up here. Just grab the elements, take them back to your seat with you. And in just a moment, uh, we'll take communion together.